Well, kia ora, hello and welcome to the Coast Vineyard Podcast. Whether you're a regular or a first-time listener, it's so good to have you listening in. We hope and pray that wherever you may find yourself at today, that the message that you're about to hear would be helpful for your journey of faith. So without further ado, let's get into this week's message. Yeah, good morning, church. Uh, You'll discover that we are, as Stanley mentioned, in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, doing a series on rebuilding. So building back up those things in our lives that are in disarray or broken or in need repair. So let me bring us all up to speed uh, on where we are up to in this book. Uh, And so to do that, I invite you to try and imagine what it would have been like roughly two and a half thousand years ago during this period. You see, in this time, the Israelites had returned back from their, um, back into their homeland after being taken away to Babylon uh, for 70 years. A lot had returned, but they were struggling. Jerusalem lay in ruins. Yes, people had started rebuilding their homes, but the, the city was sparsely populated, right? A, a faded shadow of its former glory. And yes, they'd even rebuilt the temple by this point. But again, it was smaller and far less grandiose than Solomon's temple. But the walls, the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins. The city had no defense. You simply locked your door and hoped for the best because anyone could enter the city unopposed. So imagine one day a company of men and cavalry arrive. Right, their flags and banners flapping in the breeze, uh, in the wind, advertising to all that this was a detachment of men from the Persian Empire, the very king who now ruled over you. You would have watched the leader of this company dismount his horse, tired from the long journey, his clothes, while dirty from that journey, showed him to be a man of high society with impeccable taste and quality, Clearly, he worked within the Persian palace. And as you watched him um, look over the city that he just arrived in, you might have noticed a flash of sadness in his face, maybe a tear or two in his eyes at the sight of the ruins that lay around. For this was the place of his family. This was the place of his people. This was the place of where the great kings of the past reigned and ruled from. Kings like the powerful King David and the wise King Solomon. And a few nights later, if you were awake, you might have seen this same well-dressed man and and a few of his close and trusted men slip quietly away into the night. The glow from their flaming torches would have revealed a slow and methodical inspection of the city's ruined walls. Their faces silent and grim, furrowed in in deep thought at what they were seeing. They would have looked out across the Kidron Valley to the hills beyond, and they would have seen the glowing campfires visible in the clear night sky. But whose campfires? Shepherds, maybe. Or maybe thieves and cutthroats looking for a soft target to rob and pillage. A soft target like the unwalled city of Jerusalem. But... A soft target, not for long. You see, church, this well-dressed man had seen enough. He knew what must be done. And in the morning, this man, Nehemiah, 
He spread word among his fellow countrymen uh, to gather as one outside the temple courts. He was there to make an announcement. That morning, you would have been part of a large crowd, eager to hear what, this, uh, what the news the stranger was bringing. Rumor and speculation would have rippled through the crowd in anticipation of his message. And as you looked over the crowd, you could see that nearly everyone who could attend was there. A hush would have rippled through the crowd as this mysterious fellow Israelite took to the stand. Mothers hushed their babies, and even kids stopped playing their games to hear what was about to be said. The stranger introduced himself as Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and cupbearer to the king himself. He had made the long journey after hearing of the hardships that the people of Jerusalem were under. Nods and, 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 and uh, murmurs of agreement would have gone through the crowd. He continued explaining how he had observed firsthand the state of the walls, the lack of defenses, and just how exposed the city was to attack. Ah, but, 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 no longer was this city to be left in shame. He was here to organize with the king's blessing that the walls of Jerusalem would be rebuilt. No longer would Jerusalem be an object of scorn and mockery, but a place worthy of her name, the city of peace, safe and secure behind strong walls. Church, the mood would have been like an electric current running through the crowd. Right, chairs and whoops of joy and excitement would have gone up. Mothers and fathers might have broken down with tears of joy at the thought of finally being able to sleep safely at night, knowing Jerusalem, Jerusalem's walls and gates were protecting their house and their family. Nehemiah would have then begun organizing the various groups, right, and families, assigning sections of the wall to be cleared, sorted, and rebuilt, with each group of wall builders excited to get underway. But just as the work began to gain traction, a few days later, three men, leaders from the surrounding nations, made their presence felt, making sure that not only Nehemiah could hear, but also the surrounding people. They began to mock the Israelites. We read that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? The pressure to give up on the work would have begun to have mounted. His opposition against building the walls began to take a turn now for the worse. Soon it wasn't just enough to mock the builders, but as the walls began to take shape and began to rise slowly out of the rubble and the ruin, the builders now faced the possibility of death. As we also read how our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. The mood to build the walls was now more somber. A threat of violence and death hung over the city. But under the leadership of Nehemiah, he made a plan to counter any surprise attack. Every builder was now armed, 
sword in one hand or strapped to their side, trowel to build on the other hand. Nehemiah now went nowhere without the trumpeter next to him as they made the rounds. Ready to sound the alarm at the sight of the enemy, a plan was put in place that would see everyone rush to the trumpet sound to propel the borders. Grim-faced, everyone now knew what must be done and that it needed to be done fast. The faster the walls went up, the safer they would be. So men and women worked extra hard. But there was still one more trick, one more tactic of the enemy yet to come into play. One day, Nehemiah was called to the temple. People had heard of the, that one of the prophets of God wanted to speak to Nehemiah. Maybe in this time of hardship, in this time of adversity, God was going to speak through this prophet to encourage his people. So Nehemiah entered the temple grounds and spoke with the prophet. However, this is not how it went. Well, this is how it went, sorry, as recorded by Nehemiah himself. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. In spite of all these hardships, and pressure to stop building, Nehemiah and his team of ragtag builders completed building these walls and the gates of Jerusalem in 52 days. This church is the book of Nehemiah. Yes, I may have taken a few creative licenses in the telling of this story, but his character, his job, and what that would have entailed, and how he acted. It is all through this book. Nehemiah was a man of deep convictions and deep love for God, God's people, and God's city, Jerusalem. But as he came to Jerusalem to build the walls around the city he loved, he quickly discovered that this would not be an easy job. He and the builders were met with fierce resistance from their enemies. And just like Nehemiah and the people were met with opposition, church, you and I, as we strive to rebuild, as we strive to renovate, as we strive to um, build those things in our lives that may have been neglected or, or broken down, as we strive to bring them back into alignment with God, we too will face opposition. It won't be easy to rebuild. Our enemy does not want us to rebuild. Jesus says that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul writes to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there are heaps more verses, heaps more stories, all through the Bible of God's people coming up against opposition that I could use. As this is a mega theme in the Bible there to remind us that we will have opposition and conflict as we build our lives on Christ. So this is what I want to focus on today, how to build, how to rebuild our lives on Christ when it gets hard. How do we build a life 
a marriage, a career, friendships devoted to Jesus, when the world tries to tempt us away or just plain fights us. So to do that, we'll look real quickly, real briefly, at three different types of opposition we can expect to be leveled at us, uh, examples that Nehemiah faced. And we'll be brief because I want to spend the rest of our time looking at three ways to then build through opposition. So firstly, what are the three types of opposition that uh, Nehemiah faced and that we can also expect to face? Real quick, number one is verbal opposition, right? All through this book are examples of verbal opposition. Words said to try so fear and doubt that people were taunted. The job was too big. They were not strong enough, that sort of thing. This was Nehemiah's enemy's words, and yet we can face uh, similar words as well, similar situations where people ridicule us. And what can be more troubling is when that ridicule and doubt seems to come from within. We can be our own worst enemy if we allow the thoughts sown by the enemy to take root. And when we think of verbal opposition... This is something Jesus experienced a lot of. He was often harassed and hassled by his enemies. Jesus knows what it feels like to experience verbal opposition. Number two, they experience physical opposition, right? Or the threat of physical violence. We saw earlier how the, um, after mocking the builders, that wasn't enough as they started to plot to kill the builders. I mean, that escalated real quick. And for many Christians around the world, the threat of death for being a Christian is actually normal. As uh, Stanley mentioned before, my family and I, we spent two and a half years living in a nation that has repeatedly been on the 50 worst countries to be in if you're a Christian. We knew a young local Christian girl really well who had been kicked out of her family, kicked out of the village. Her own parents disowning her because she followed Jesus. And many others like her had the threat of physical violence hanging over them if they returned home. Now again, if we look briefly to Jesus as our example, physical violence and opposition is something Jesus experienced leading up to the cross and, of course, hanging on the cross. Our God knows what it feels like to experience physical violence. Lastly, they experienced emotional opposition. This is where someone you love, someone you respect, someone you care about, turns out to be at worst, false. They don't love you. Or at best, well-intended, but wrong. And what they say or do hurts, uh, actually hurts you. This could be a friend, a spouse, family member, even a church leader. And we saw this in effect in Nehemiah 6, 10 to 14, where Nehemiah goes to the prophet expecting godly counsel, but instead finds out that the prophet was a double agent working for the enemy, there to sow lies and fear, wounds from a friend, whether intentional or not, hurt. They hurt the most. And I think of Jesus going to the cross, that time when he really could have done with a good friend, but all his disciples abandoned him. Our God knows what emotional opposition feels like. That was the three main ways that Nehemiah and the builders experienced opposition. 
as they rebuilt the walls. And by extension, we too can expect similar attacks as we rebuild the areas in our lives that have been neglected and fallen down. And so, of course, the big question then is, well, how did Nehemiah overcome and build through opposition? We're going to look at three key areas in our lives that we need to focus on if we are to build through opposition and become a more resilient person. And it's going to be super easy to remember as we are going to look at uh, building within, building upwards, and building outwards. So inwards, upwards, outwards. And I'm taking those ideas from the greatest commandment, where we are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. So everything within you, upwards to God. Love your neighbor. There it is, outwards. As you love yourself, as you take care of yourself, we need all three to function well. So let's look at building resilience on the inside first. And we do that by acknowledging the emotions we feel. So Nehemiah acknowledged his feelings, mostly, to God. Uh, And we'll get some examples from Nehemiah. But first, let me just unpack what I mean by all this. You see, when we come up against adversity, opposition, pain, suffering, depending on how we are naturally wired, uh, we will tend to gravitate most of the time to either one of two directions. We will either get angry or we get sad. Now, done in the right way, both of these feelings are healthy, responses to stress and adversity, but done wrong, left unchecked, unprocessed, and these feelings quickly lead to bad habits or unhealthy habits that can culminate in really dark places. So on the response side of anger, it is a slippery slope that goes from rage and hatred to its worst, murder. That's the most extreme form of anger you can get. And we just saw that slippery slope a minute ago with Nehemiah's enemies. It started as a verbal abuse, mockery, and then a few verses later, they're talking about killing people. That is unchecked, unhealthy anger. And then on the other side, sadness. Right? Sadness can go from melancholy, depression, self-harm, all the way to its extreme, suicide. That's the danger of letting sin reign unchecked, unrestrained over our natural emotions. But like I said, an emotional response like sadness or anger at hardship, pain, oppression, adversity, it's a normal human response. Think about how Jesus, right, the perfect human, think how he acted when he was on earth. He definitely wasn't a robot. We see Jesus get frustrated, sad, worried, surprised, and even angry. Paul reminds us in Ephesians that in your anger, do not sin. So it's okay to get angry, just don't sin. So anger and sadness become sinful when it's all about our glory and not God's glory. So say you read in the news about a child abuse case. Anger is the right response there. That thing, should, sort of thing should make us angry. But if I get cut off on the motorway, and I start getting angry, well, that was more of a sinful reaction to anger, as it's all about me and my ego. A healthier response would be to vent all that frustration to God. And we see good examples of this in the book of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah tends to lean towards getting angry, that's his emotional sort of go-to response, um, rather than, than getting sad, majority of the time. 
Listen to his prayer in, in Nehemiah 4, 4 uh, to 5, sorry. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Nehemiah pours out his frustrations to God. He is brutally honest about how he feels. And this ties in with um, Stanley's points a couple of weeks ago, where he encouraged us to have honest prayers. Nehemiah's prayer doesn't get much honest than that. Look at what he's saying. Don't forgive these guys, God. Let them be plundered. Let them be intact instead. Let them go into exile and captivity. There's no grace there. There's no mercy there. Just raw emotion. That was his prayer. But we don't get recorded what God's response was to that frustration. Did God grant his prayer? Or did he gently remind Nehemiah that he also wants his enemies to come to faith, come to know God? Maybe, maybe not. It's a prayer left unanswered for us because it's a great example of someone struggling with their emotions and then who takes that raw emotion to God. It's there for us to copy and learn from. Because look, church, God will do what God will do. He will act according to his glory and his plan, not ours. God can handle it all. He is our safe space. And once we've been able to vent to God, we're in a better space to then act more loving and in a more godly way. And look, least we put Nehemiah up on this pedestal, he doesn't always get it right when he deals with his anger. Because in another instance, Nehemiah learns that a lot of families were intermarrying with foreigners so that now they weren't even worshipping God, right? This is the same issue that got everybody kicked out of the land and into exile. So it's pretty serious. How did Nehemiah respond? We read this. I, re I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and I pulled out their hair. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced this is quite the right way to respond. I mean, not even in MMA cage fighting do we see grown men pull other men's hair out, okay? He's crossed a line there. Uh, but jokes aside, this is a great discussion question for you on your way home from church. Was Nehemiah right to beat people and curse them? That's your homework. Let me know next week, okay? But again, what an illustration um, that illustration is still a reminder for us to take our emotion and pain and anger first to God. And look, it's the same for when we feel sadness, or sadness is our dominant emotion. Look at how Nehemiah processes a time when sadness rather than anger overwhelms him in chapter 1. We read how the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And he then launches into a prayer of repentance for his people. What a great response. He goes to God in prayer and fasting and just pours out his soul to his maker. 
Church, when we come against opposition, we need to remember to take those natural uh, human response feelings and vent them upwards to God. God, not social media, all right? Far more healthier to vent to God because God forgives. Facebook doesn't. It's there forever. God is able to handle our anger, right, or our sadness. So let's remember to come to him. God already knows our hearts, right? So let your heart breathe. Be honest. And in that time of raw emotional prayer, God will meet us, right? He will either lovingly correct you or he'll comfort you. Either way, you get God and you get the emotional healing that comes through him. Okay, we better press on. Number two, we're going to build upwards. We build a life upwards in prayer. Now, you might have noticed that within our first point, acknowledging, expressing our feelings, uh, there was a lot of talk, uh, taking that to God in prayer. And at first, I really tried to separate these two points out. Um, but they're just so well entwined that it's really hard to separate. Clearly how we feel and then taking those feelings to God in prayer, that is something that should come natural. So we won't spend a great deal of time on this point since we've covered a lot of it already. And again, have a listen to Stanley's message uh, from two weeks ago as he covers a lot on prayer. That being said, the book of Nehemiah has at least 14 recorded prayers. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And his example, I hope, encourages us to imitate him. I mean, there are short prayers, very long prayers, prayers of help, repentance, favor, and for justice, just to name a few. This is a man who is continually before God in prayer. He is a man who prioritizes his relationship with God. He is in prayer because God is his highest priority, his greatest need, and his greatest relationship that he treasures. Out of this life of prayer came not a perfect man, only Jesus is perfect, but a man striving to build his life on God. We, when, we, uh, when he gets it wrong, we see repentance. When he gets it right, people under his leadership and direction flourish. City walls are rebuilt. Spiritual revival breaks out as Bible teachers like Ezra flourish under his leadership. Justice is administered. Nehemiah does all this with integrity and love for the people God has placed in his care. For us, how can we not but be inspired by this man's prayer life? We can all be a bit like Nehemiah, even if it's just starting with a short prayer. Nehemiah's was, Lord, strengthen my hands. We can do the same. Lord, help me at work. Lord, help me with my kids. Lord, help me in my marriage. Lord, help me to pray. Rebuild your prayer life by starting small and going from there. Because if we want to build well, if we desire to build our relationship with Christ, then it all starts with prayer. Lastly, number three, we build outwards. And, and we do that through community. Now, last week, last week, one of our other pastors, Jacinda, she touched on this point of community. So if you haven't already listened to that message, jump online this week and have a listen to that as well, as I'll be building a lot on her points, or her main point. But to summarize, in Nehemiah's day, everyone came together to build and support one another to rebuild the walls. 
fathers, sons, daughters, goldsmiths, perfumers, leaders, priests, like everyone. Everyone helped to build the walls. They all built and were responsible for a section of the wall. And in doing so, that became part of something bigger, as all these individual parts worked together to make the whole. Right? The entire city was walled up because everyone worked together. And just like in Nehemiah's day, so it is with us. Our lives are like a section of wall, individual and yet linked together to form a whole. Linked together, we are the church. And if you and I, if we build well, the church is strengthened. If you or I take shortcuts, think the work isn't important enough to invest in, the church and those around us miss out and even sometimes suffer from our poor workmanship. Our actions or lack of actions affects others. So practically, how does this look? Well, just like uh, the people were building a section of wall, as they had, on, had people next to them on their, le- on their right and on their left, building as well, we too have pe- people building next to us, building their lives on Christ, both to our left and our right. And I want us to think of those people building uh, next to us in this way. So think of the people to our left as someone younger than us that we can encourage. So whatever stage of life we are currently in, uh, there's at least one person a bit younger than you and I. Think maybe physically, but also younger, maybe spiritually in their journey. Or maybe in their stage of life that they're in. Or their career. They may have one of these aspects or all of them. Uh, So an obvious example for me uh, in my life would be my kids. They tick all those boxes. And so um, for my wife and I, we just need to help them build their lives on Christ by reflecting what a life built on Christ looks like through good times and bad. Because whether we feel ready or not, they are building their lives. The question is on who? On God or on themselves? So it's important for us to show them how to build well. But perhaps you don't have kids. Maybe you're a young adult or you're at uni or whatever, starting a career. There will still be younger people in the faith, younger in age, uh, maybe siblings or youth or, or kids here at church. What younger person's life can you help encourage? Or maybe you're in retirement age, or your kids are growing up, or you're in the later stage of life. Are there young families that you are speaking into? Families or individuals that could benefit from your wisdom and your life experience. Things that you've learned along the way on your walk with God over the years. My point is this. We can all encourage others to build well. To encourage people to keep pressing on to Christ. So think about the people in your life right now that you can encourage, that you can be in prayer for. And secondly, there's at least another, uh, other people to our right who are building their life on Christ. And I want us to think of those people as being uh, slightly older than us. So again, maybe someone physically older, or maybe someone a bit wiser, uh, someone along the uh, spiritual journey a bit more than us, maybe in the next stage of life than us. Again, could have one of these traits or all of them. It's these people we can learn from if we are humble. 
How have they been building their life well? What mistakes have they made that we can learn from? And then, you know, how did they navigate the stage of life we're currently in? You see, whatever stage of life you're in with your walk with Christ, in this room right now, there is just so much wisdom on all aspects of life. And we can learn from each other. So please, make those deeper connections. Grow those relationships. Uh, Join a small group. Uh, Join a volunteer group. It's a great way uh, to meet people here as you volunteer at church. Lastly, this is like a bonus point under community. Not only did Nehemiah have a community of builders, but they were also a community of fighters. As the enemy came to stop the walls being built by force, Nehemiah armed everybody. And I love that image that comes across in Nehemiah, trowel for wall building in one hand and sword for defending in the other. They were ready at the sound of the trumpet to defend their family, to defend their community, to defend their city. They banded together to fight the enemy. And we too need to be ready to fight, to be spiritually armed to the teeth, to be praying for our family, our friends, our church, standing alongside the people we care for. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemy is unseen, trying to tear down anyone who builds their life on Christ. We will need not only to build well, but to defend well. So will we fight for our relationship with God? Then let's fight against laziness. Fight against discouragement. Fight for your purity. Fight for your marriages. Fight for your kids. Speak into their lives. Live a life of authentic faith for them to see. And let's fight for our friendships, not taking them for granted, but being there for them when it matters. Because let me come to a close now on why this all matters, why we need to build well, and why we need to defend well. So here's 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. How we build our lives matters. It will be tested. And look, I don't want to be that guy who one day stands before the throne of God and says to Jesus, hey, check out my high score on Call of Duty, right? I don't want to be that guy. It's going to get burned up. I don't want to be that guy who says, check out all my likes on social media. Again, burned up. I don't want that to be me. I want a deepness and a richness to my life. Instead, on that day, when I enter into the throne room of God, I want to stagger into that room. 
I want my spiritual armor barely holding on, barely held together, all bashed up and deformed from many a spiritual battle. I want to barely have the strength to drag my sword of God behind me. I want to be covered in mud, blood, sweat, and many, many tears, having given my all for for God's kingdom. And as I stagger to my knees before the throne of God, I want nothing more than for Jesus to reach down, lift up my face to him so I can see him and so I can hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, enter into your master's happiness. Church, that's what I want. That's what I want, man. And that's what we want, isn't it? Then please, I beg of you, build your life well. Build your life on Christ. And then secondly, fight for it. Never give up the fight because the journey is long and it's hard. And we need to help each other along the way. Thanks so much for joining us for today's message. We hope and pray that it's been most helpful. If you are keen to find out a little bit more about us as a church whanau or you'd like to touch base, then you can go to coast.org.nz and there you'll find information about our in-person services, online services, various resources and activities. Enjoy the day. Be blessed.